Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. Ah, uh, hello, Colton. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Good. Thank you so much for joining us on the AMNR podcast. Oh, you're welcome. I'm happy to do it. For those listening, my name is Colton Bissett. I am a PGY3 at UT. Um, this is the AMNR report. And we are so lucky to have Dr. Smith here. Dr. Smith, if you would introduce yourself, kind of tell us about uh, just what you do professionally, what got you into uh, lymphedema and wound care, and how that question kind of developed. Okay, so um, I was trained as an internist, and I did private practice initially, and some hospital work when I did private practice, we would do a week in the hospital and then three weeks in the outpatient. And then later I moved to being a full-time hospitalist. And um, then I did some hospice work. And while I was doing hospice work um, and being a hospitalist, patients had a lot of wounds. And uh, the wound care doctor, um, I was going on vacation and she asked me, she said, would you cover me while I'm on? And I said, I don't know anything about wounds. And she said, all you do, I see the way you take care of your patients and you always make sure they get up. You always check their skin. So I was a little hesitant. So I talked to the plastic surgeon who uh, would come to, I, I also did work in the LTAC. And she was asking me, to cover her both of the acute care and the LTAC. So I asked the plastic surgeon, I said, she asked me to cover her, but I'm hesitant. I don't know anything about wound care. Would you be interested in covering her? And he said, oh, you do more than you think. <laughs> he said, I see how you take care of your patients. Uh, uh, you always check their skin and you always document something on their skin. I said, oh, that's just because I like skin. I wanted to be a dermatologist. And he said, uh, do it. And if you need help, I'll help you. So I did it. And I actually didn't need help. Um, I was kind of learning from watching her take care of my patients and with him as well. And I, when she came back, I said, was it okay that anybody complained? She said, not a complaint. You did well. Do you want to join my practice? And I didn't want to join her practice, um, but I decided, well, maybe I should learn a little more about wound care. So I took the course and I started, you know, practicing on my own patients, learning the products and everything. And then that worked really well. And then people started consulting me. <laughs> I was a little bit of a shock. Uh. <laughs> yeah. And uh, because I was... I was there. She would. She was moving from hospital to hospital, but I was there primarily. So when they saw me, they said, "Hey, could you come and look at this patient for me?" 
And then they started consulting me and then, you know, it, it, it seems... You were an expert. <laughs> yeah. And then she, she told me, uh, you know, you should learn hyperbaric medicine. You're pretty good at this wound care. And, and she said, why don't you, uh, learn how to, I mean, we could, uh, you know, refer to each other and, uh, or cover for each other. And, and I did. And then I moved to UT. I didn't think I would because, you know, like the drive time <laughs> was prohibitive. Um, but when I interviewed, um, Dr. Carolyn Fight was here and, um, she said, well, you know, we do lymphedema and hyperbaric medicine. And I was already working a little bit with lymphedema because, um, the patient, patient, I had a, a couple of patients who had swelling in their legs and really from venous insufficiency and a couple of them from lymphedema and I would start compression on them and, you know, things I read. And when I came, I told her, I don't really know that much about lymphedema, but, um, with it on, she said, oh, we'll teach you. And I started and, uh, we had five lymphedema therapists and I would sit with them and talk with them and, and then I, I just fell in love with lymphedema. And here we are. And here we are. Wow. Then I trained as a certified lymphedema therapist um, because the five uh, lymphedema therapists who were there, Medicare changed their guidelines about who can do lymphedema therapy. Uh, so they had to leave. And uh, the two therapists that were hired was straight out of OT school and had, and then had to go to a lymphedema training course. And I ended up being the one teaching them the medical aspects, how to look for cellulitis, what cellulitis is. I mean, they had the OT down and, and, and I wanted to be on the same page with them in terms of what they were learning in terms of technique. So I got trained and then I could say, oh yeah, well, let's add foam here. Let's you know, and, and we worked very well together and it, it turns out <laughs> that I really like this stuff. Yeah. That's really cool too. How it just started with, Hey, can you cover for me? Yeah. <laughs> kind of got the ball rolling and kind of helped feed. It sounds like it helped feed that passion that you've always had for dermatology. And yes. You kind of found your way into it, uh, made yes. indirect paths. That's really awesome. And um, when people ask me, I said, it, this is the best world for me because I like surgery, so I get to do debridements and bone biopsies. Well, I like skin, so <laughs> I have wound and lymphedema. And um, and I, I, hyperbaric medicine. I mean, I used to, I remember I'm dating myself when I used to watch Flipper and, think, and Jack Cousteau and think, boy, wouldn't that be nice to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that's great thank you so much for sharing that i feel like as residents well really as medical students too we're always kind of well, well what do you want to specialize in when we get into residency and then also what do you want to do your fellowship in um and so it's always kind of like thinking about the next thing uh do you have any advice for maybe medical students or residents on how to kind of feed their passion, whatever it may be, whether it's 
uh, more at the genitology side or um, whether it's in a specific field like for residents, whether they have a passion for pain or brain injury, how would you encourage them to follow their passions? I would encourage them to know themselves really and, 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 and ask yourself always, is this my passion, my innate passion, or is this a passion that was given to me? Because mm. sometimes, um, and I've met people even when I um, would interview people from medical school, who I could tell that they were doing it because mom and dad wanted, or mm. or my friends think, you know, it's kind of like if you're tall and all your friends think you should play basketball, <laughs> what you really like is soccer. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. So really identify, is this my passion? And your passion will make room for you. Um, you will you will find your way because you will be happy if you follow your passion. Uh, sometimes people think of, well, I'm going into this because it's going to make me more money. And uh, over the years, you know, I have known a lot of physicians and some of them, wish they could go back and do what they really love because the money doesn't make them happy. Mm-hmm. So find your passion and, and, and ask yourself, I could tell you that, and this is how I, uh, this is what I said even uh, to my kids. Um, on any given day I wake up, I still want to do this. Wow. Worst day, I want to do this. That's what you should have in your life. That's when your passion makes room for you. But if you're constantly thinking, oh my God, why am I doing this? I should have done that. And don't limit yourself to just one thing. You could be a slash. You know, that's a term that's being used now, a slack. I used to say you could be as much as your passion allows you to be. Mm. Because I'm getting to do a little bit of dermatology. I mean... I wanted to do dermatology, but the the places that I interviewed, I was married and had three kids. You know, I went to medical school with two and came out with three. That's a long story. Uh, But so, and I knew those places, I didn't really want to raise my kids. So I took my next best love, which is medicine, internal medicine. But my passion allowed me to still always check my patient's skin and, you know, read, you know, what what's the best ointment to use to keep them moisturized, you know, those things. My passion made rules for me so that she noticed and asked me to cover for her. And the plastic surgeon noticed and said, oh, you absolutely could do this. Right? Mm-hmm. So let your passion make rules for you. And you will you would know what to do. That's like what find, find your passion. Yes, that's that's such great wisdom. I I'm a firm believer too, and we make time for what's important to us. Yeah. Um, and for what you're saying, it's just remembering, even in the midst of maybe run a rotation that we may not particularly like or we may feel drained, but to remember our passion and why we're doing what we're doing, uh, continue. Just follow that. Yeah. yeah. You know, because I say, say I could do it in a tent or a palace. <laughs> and I have, actually. Um, I do medical missions, so I've done it in a tent. 
not the palace yet, but hopefully one day. Yes, yes. Hopefully in the palace, but uh, the tents need it a lot. Yes. Um, so kind of transitioning a little bit, I, I think that there was some really key things that you were talking about in the lecture. One of the, we come across, as residents, I feel like the biggest area that we come across on the Duma is whenever we're on consult rotations. And so on consults, we see a bunch of different patients, whether they have cancer, brain injury, spinal cord injury. Um, and, and typically, we see the lymphedema come across whenever we see our cancer patients that are being evaluated for inpatient rehab. I was wondering if you have any advice for us. Let's say we have a uh, we get consults that on a patient for inpatient rehabilitation evaluation, DISPA, mm-hmm. um, but we notice lymphedema. How can we best direct or how can we best approach that um, to let the primary team know how to effectively treat that in short term? One good way is in your documentation. Um, with, what, with what you know now, make sure you document. And also remember with P- in PMNR, disuse atrophy can cause edema. And that chronic disuse atrophy, the chronic edema can lead to lymphedema. So you could write that, um, you know, this patient has edema, um, possibly related to disuse acid or low protein states or whatever the other thing is. And you say, you know, consider lymphedema consult and Mm -hmm. it helps you, you know. But document what you know. I think that's really good. And whenever we are to consult lymphedema, uh, would we'd be consulting a physician service or a nursing service, or what does that look like? Well, I think it will depend on the hospital you're in. Here, fortunately, we have doctors who practice lymphedema, and we have lymphedema therapists, but in some places, it's a lymphedema therapist. And they're trained, and they would need your supervision, but they'll they'll ask um, the primary okay, well, we, based on our knowledge, this patient has this and would need this type of compression. Is it okay? Oh, because the physician has to write the order. That's really good. And um, I think, too, whenever I'm speaking to a primary team, typically I'm speaking to either mid-level or a resident. And so it's kind of like we're educating each other. In a way. Yes, uh, and one of the things in your lecture that stuck out to me was the DEER acronym. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could go over that for our listeners, because um, I thought it was just a really uh, easy way to approach and to, uh, at the bare minimum, develop some sort of uh, general guide for a treatment. Okay, so you want to encourage diaphragmatic breathing, all right, because we know um, when people, when you breathe from the diaphragm, you increase venous flow as well as lymph flow back up towards the vena cava and into the heart. Okay. Um, you want to encourage exercise, um, moderate exercise, you want, and you want to encourage uh, people to uh, speak to their physician about exercise. Um, even if it's um, if that when they like a short walk, I, I tell my patients, try to get up and walk, even if in the around the house, 
um, if their arms, uh, if it's their arms, you know, maybe try to lift it above the head or just do some curls. Yeah, I, I actually tell my patients they could take a bottle of water in each hand and do some curls. Okay. They drink a little bit too. <laughs> drink a little uh, you, you definitely want to uh, assess their medical status. You know, do they have congestive heart failure, chronic renal insufficiency? Um, and are you refer to lymphedema specialists? Mm. That's good. Thank you for sharing that. Another thing in um, that really stood out to me too is you, you talked about obesity being a big risk factor for developing lymphedema. Um, how would you counsel uh, a patient in the inpatient setting and the outpatient setting, and maybe it's the same thing, um, who may be obese on the outs who develop healthier lifestyles, develop healthier habits um, to limit the risk of developing lymphedema in the future? Okay, so for both, it's it's really going to be the same thing. So for my patients, um, uh, I encourage them to develop a healthy lifestyle, and especially in terms of nutrition. So in, in the outpatient setting, I refer them to the nutritionist. Um, I also would recommend, for a long time, I would, even for patients who are not diabetic, I would recommend um, an ADA diet um, because it's healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, averaging like 1,800 calories or uh, for some patients, 2,000. And when we had a nutritionist available, you know, I, I turned that over to the nutritionist. So um, in the outpatient setting, um, in one one area that I work, the nutritionist actually was in the clinic. And I would make sure that she came in before or after me to see the patient because it was so important to me that they understand nutrition and she would follow up. And sometimes she would come and say, Dr. Smith, they're so non-compliant. And I'd say, no. <laughs> sometimes my patients would say, you know, she's a lot, lot nicer than you about this. <laughs> you bugly. When I said, is it working? <laughs> they say, yes. Because, and really, so you have to develop a rapport with them. And they say, I know you would bug me about the salt, so I did not have any salt this week. <laughs> you know, uh, and, but that's helpful. And if if here, uh, at here, what I do is I would put in a nutrition consult and the nutritionist will call them. So I, I try to get involved, get them involved in healthy eating. Um, you'd be surprised to know I, I have patients and I would say, okay, so what did you have for breakfast this morning? Well, I had an Arby's breakfast with X, Y, and Z. Well, what did you have for lunch yesterday? And then they tell you something else that's, you know, purely high fat. And a lot of patients don't understand the difference between what's fatty, what's carbohydrate, and what's protein. And, mm-hmm. you know, they just think it's calories. 
you know. Uh, and for Wonky, I have to ask them all the time, are you getting enough protein in your diet? And they say, well, I eat potatoes and I eat, you know, and I, I say, how about meat, eggs, fish, you know? Mm-hmm. And then they say, oh, oh, so that's proteins. I say, you eat beans? Yes, that's protein. And they're like, oh. So, I, you know, we take it for granted that, that people know everything that we know and we forget that we trained and we assume that, oh, yeah, they know. And I have patients who would tell me, well, I don't get a lot of sugar. Uh, do you drink Coke? Yeah. Do you drink any kind of soda? Yeah. How many do you drink? Oh, I drink about a half a liter or maybe a liter. I buy a two, two liter bottle and they'll tell me, you know, and I have to, I go so when I go through with them without judgment, that's the key without judgment. Uh, I don't say, oh, I can't believe you. Uh, I say, okay, so here's what, this is how you read the label. And I have to give them a copy. Uh, uh, I have a sheet with label. This is how you read the label. See that right here. That will tell you how much protein. This will tell you how many calories. And I explain to them. And a lot of them, even though they don't want to do it, they appreciate the effort I make to teach them about that. And sometimes they look at it and say, I didn't know can soup have that much salt. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah, it does, doesn't it? And it, it, it gives them a new way of looking at things. Some of them are really happy and compliant with it. And some of them say, oh, Dr. Smith, I can't read every label. But that's really, I, I dig a little deeper because that's sometimes saying, I don't want to face the fact mm-hmm. that I've been doing it wrong. So I always remind them, okay, never mind what you did before. Okay. Don't blame yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Okay. We're starting from today. Um, so I approach it that way. I don't know if it helps, but there's so much about obesity and so much that people feel and have been told all their lives. And, you know, when they look online and they see other people who will, you know, are six sizes smaller than they are, it's defeating and deflating. So I try not to add to that. I think that's a great approach too. And uh, I'm a firm believer in when people have a why that they live from, they have hope. Yes. It sounds like uh, a big approach that you have is either restoring hope for them that they can make a change or continuing to encourage them uh, in the hope that they do have to successfully make that change. Uh, whether it's a slow process or a fast process, um, I really align with that. Making sure patients still retain that sense of hope. Yes, my favorite line is, help me to help you. Yes, that's very good. I think I think in the midst of busy schedules, a lot of times I forget that sometimes too. I think, oh, I have X amount of notes <laughs> and I have, you know, this message coming in from this staff member and I have to put this consult in over here, but the help me help you line is very good to just 
take a step back and remember that sometimes going a little bit slower may actually be going a little bit faster because now you're moving in the right direction for that particular patient. You know, because remember, patients have lives that you know nothing about. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've had, you know, uh, patients who seem to be non-compliant to me, um, but when I dug a little bit deeper is, you know, they have, a grandchild living with them who has who just got divorced and has three kids and they're living with them and you know they have a special needs older child living with them and I'm talking to them about buying foods that are low <laughs> or low yeah. sodium and those cost more. Yeah. It, it may come down to either I eat this both quality food or I don't pay rent or mortgage. So those are things I consider. This is why I don't like beating them over the head. You know, I try to find it. So help me to help you. Is there something that's uh, holding you back from doing this? What's, What's going on? And sometimes they tell me. And sometimes I don't have a good answer. I say, do the best you can, because I don't have a good answer. And I think that's something too, as doctors, maybe a fear is not having a good answer or any answer at all. But I think even having that little bit of encouragement, to, hey, maybe I don't know what the right answer is here, but continue to do your best with still helping that person retain that hope and sense of encouragement and it just kind of builds trust, I feel like, uh, as you, as they continue to follow up in the outpatient setting, they have that trust factor that you genuinely care about and want the best for them. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, just, uh, I'll use one more question here, um, and then we'll kind of close out. Uh, I think one interesting or maybe one question one question that i have and maybe you know maybe other people i have this question maybe other people don't uh but we see ted policies used a lot for general edema treatment mm-hmm. could you describe how the short stretch wrap works differently than a ted hose and when to maybe use one or the other okay so ted hoses are really anti-thromboembolytic hoses, okay. The short straps that we use, um, and with lymphedema and with venous insufficiency, what you want is graduated compression. So the compression is tighter at the ankles, the foot and the ankle, and it's looser as you go up so that the fluid could move upward. Mm-hmm. So when you do the compression wraps, um, you know, you use the law of Laplace and um, you, you will use narrower, narrower sh- uh, sh- short stretch. And then as you go up, you would use wider short stretch, um, getting you a different radius and getting you a different level of compression. So, so a, a TED hose, temporarily for edema, you know, somebody 
is in the hospital and temporarily, you know, they have some acute edema. That may not be too bad if, if that's the best you could do. But people with long-term edema, chronic edema, and lymphedema really need that graduated compression. And it's the same, that's the, the dematic compression prompts are like that too. It's graduated compression. That's a good key distinguishing fact, the graduated compression versus just the tetanus being one compression. Well, thank you so much for, for being with us. I know that maybe the, uh, the golden idea has helped me to help you uh, philosophy, but do you have any any other general advice or recommendations for uh, for residents or for trainees in medicine? Yes, um, you're going to be walking around and standing for a long time. Uh, it doesn't. It won't hurt for you to wear some fifteen to twenty compression socks that you can get over the counter because. Um, you oh, right now when you're young and you're active and your muscle remember you, the the calf muscle is the main pump, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and they're working well. But after years and years, it begins to take a toll. People get varicose veins, um, and and you you know depending especially on your own personal family history, if you have a propensity propensity. Uh, to have varicose veins in the family where the, the valves um, weaken uh, uh, with time, you know, it, it, it doesn't hurt. That's good. So help me to help you and wear compression socks. <laughs> yeah, the, it's the counter ones are fine. You don't need prescription ones unless you have, you know, a problem. But, you know, in, you know at the athletic stores are selling them now because so, athletes use them. So... Especially the rebels. I see a lot of the rebels using them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't hurt. Under the scrubs, you got some compression. And you, you, your legs actually feel better. Your calf muscle and everything feel better. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Smith, for being with us on our first PM&R report of the academic year. Such an honor having you on the, the podcast and thank you so much for spending the morning with us. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you. Nice meeting you, Colton. Good to meet you too, Dr. Smith. Have a good day. I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. 
consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.